0: I love them. They, they say the right things and they, they seem to go the right places for encouragement, but they're, they're just bent on justice. They're, they, they just can't seem to get their head around the fact that life is hard and that the world is broken and that that's the way it is. You understand what I'm saying? That that the frustration of, you know, when somebody comes and they sit down and they're having a conversation with you about some wrong that's been perpetrated and you're listening and you're agreeing, yes, it's wrong, yes, it's terrible, yes, it's frustrating, yes, yes. But you got to move on. I mean, we can't change that. It's always been that way. It's always going to be that way. And that's not what they want to hear. And they're just completely fixated on trying to right this wrong, trying to fix this injustice, trying to, and it just simply, it just drives you crazy because you're just spinning around in circles. You're never going to get out of that vortex because it's not going to happen. Now, I'm not, I'm not advocating that we all just simply Ignore things and just uh, be. I certainly don't want us to uh, uh, adapt the Eeyore syndrome where we're like, oh, well, it's going to be bad today. I mean, I don't want that either. But let's face it, life is hard. And you know what? The wrong person is going to get the promotion, the, the, the most undeserving person is going to get the break. You know, the person who puts in the least is going to get the most credit. I mean, it just happens that way. It's just not, you know, and, and if you're, if we're, if we're out there living our lives and we're just, you know, we just can't seem to reconcile in our heart that life's not fair. It's not fair. And I think that is a good thing. I do. And I, and I, it breaks my heart for people who claim the name of Christ and they don't think that it's a good thing. They don't realize that the last thing they want is fair. That's the last thing you and I want. I am so grateful that life's not fair. I don't, sometimes I wonder, you know, I mean, you know, just, I think of my own personal situation. Like I can, I can, be home once or twice a year with, with my family of origin and, and I can be sitting around the 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 Thanksgiving table. Me and my wife and our kids and then everyone else. And I can be looking around at all the faces around that table and I can think, why me, God? Why did you choose me? You know, it's not fair. But thank God you chose me. Thank God I'm here. I mean, you know, I can't explain that. But it just is what it is. I mean, why do I know? And they don't know. Why is that? And what the Bible does is it just takes this shockingly blunt approach to the reality of life the difficulties of life. It doesn't take any shortcuts. God's Word doesn't try to hide anything. I mean, all the atrocities of humanity are recorded right here. One of the challenges to uh, beginning to have access to or learn and understand the original language is that you realize how tame what you have in your hands is. Because it, the reality of the words that are here before us so oftentimes are they, they would be offensive. They would be offensive. So many times. They'd be offensive. Because God does not, He doesn't He doesn't shortcut, He doesn't hide anything, He gives us everything. And so this if this series has taught us anything so far, it's that So much of what we hear in this culture about Christianity is so warped. It's so skewed. It's it's taught us that God really does want us to have our best life now. That's what it's taught us. The problem is you got to define best the way God does. He wants you to have your best life now. That's what we've seen in Abraham's life and Jacob's life and... Joseph's life. We've seen that. God wants you and me to have our best life now, but it's the way He defines best that's going to throw everything into a tailspin. So, God tonight will, will give us a glimpse into how to deal with our pain. And He doesn't give us a, a, a formula to follow. What He does in Scripture is He gives us these case studies. Now, when we look at these case studies, you have to understand, you can't look at a, a narrative like we're going to look at in 1 Samuel 1 and say, well, this is what you should do if you find yourself in this exact situation and then God's going to do exactly what He did in 1 Samuel chapter 1. You can't do that because you've got to understand, we're reading a case study of the God of the universe dealing with a person and this is a God who made sure that no two fingerprints were the same, that no two snowflakes were the same, that this God of infinite creativity is not going to do exactly the same thing in your life as He does in anybody else's life because you're not the same. He made all of us different and His character and nature never wavers or change, but changes, but He He gives us glimpses into His character and nature but they're not formulas, and if we try to make them formulas, we'll really, uh, we really, just lessen the value of what's so marvelously creative and unique that's before us. We see we see God's patterns, we see His ways, we see His tendencies, but more so than anything else, we see His priorities and His heart and His motivation. We see those things crystal clear, and that's what's most. I think, valuable. So we'll look tonight at a woman's life, a very ordinary woman who has a very ordinary problem that's not unique uh, to her, but yet it's, it's common enough for us all to relate to the pain that she feels inside. So let's look together. First Samuel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. There's a certain man at Raphaim, Zophim, of the mountains of Ephraim, now, understand we're talking about a place that's about 30 miles north of Jerusalem. So it sounds like the middle of nowhere, but don't be fooled. It's, not, it's only about 30 miles away from uh, basically where modern Palestine is today. And his name was Elkanah, and he was the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf. Uh, he was an Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The name of one wife was Hannah. The name of the other was Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man, he went up from his city to his yearly worship and sacrifice of the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. Also, the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make his offering, he would give two portions to Peninnah. He would give a portion to Peninnah, his wife, He would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. So it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her, therefore she wept and did not eat. Verse 8, Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart grieved? And am I not better to you than ten sons? Now, we'll just stop here for a second and look at uh, a little bit of context of where we are. It's about 1100 B.C. The people of Israel are in utter chaos. When we sort of jump into this story, you have to understand we're coming off of one of the darkest times of Israel's history. We're coming at the very tail end of the the time known as the Judges. And you may be familiar with the very last passage of Scripture in Judges chapter 21. At the end of that book, it says that in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I mean, it was a very, very tumultuous time to say the least. It was not the time in the history of God's people that you would ever have chosen to want to be born. Very, very hard. Very, very difficult. Lots and lots of struggles. And to be born into this time and to be so very ordinary as Hannah was, it would be uh, very, very difficult. And God is going to use the painful circumstances of this nobody lady really to shape a nation. And we'll see again God's just ultimate commitment to his purposes and to use the least likely to accomplish them. So Hannah's pain, that's the first thing we're going to look at in this these first eight passages. I, I want you to see that it's uh, in the midst of this spiritual decay. Uh, this sort of should leap off the page to us, like in verse 3 where it says that Elkanah, he went up from his city to yearly to worship and sacrifice the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. So this that phrase, the, the Yahweh of the armies, the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. He he would go up. Shiloh was the, the place, the central place of worship in Israel at this time. So Solomon had yet to build the temple. And so there in Shiloh was where uh, the, the tabernacle was, where everyone would go, where the priests were. And so the Bible tells us that's where the priest Eli was and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And so... These two sons, so you see these two things going on at the same time. On one hand, Elkanah is a spiritual man who's going up to worship yearly. He loves the Lord. He does that which is, you know, commanded of him. He honors the Lord and yet he goes to Shiloh to sacrifice in a temple where if you are familiar with the book of 1 Samuel, you know that Hophni and Phinehas were the furthest things from priests and yet they were functioning in the temple as priests and they had basically set up what amounted to as a prostitution ring at the entrance to the tabernacle they were stealing uh meat from the sacrifices from the people in a multitude of just grievous horrible ways i mean it was a complete uh, catastrophe i mean the 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 moral decay had reached completely into the ranks of the those who were called by god to lead spiritually the people so it was utter disaster but Elkanah is a man who is uh, of principle and he is doing that which God's called him to do. And, and as horrible of a time as this is, it's Hannah's time. It's the time that Hannah had no choice. It's the time that Hannah uh, comes and that God uh, puts her on the face of the earth. And so it's her time. And so she's married to Elkanah. He's a, he's a good man. Uh, you know, First Chronicles tells us that he's a Levite. Uh, he's, he's born in the tribe of Levi. He's uh, he he will serve God. He'll be faithful to God. Uh, he took his his worship of God seriously. He took his family worship seriously. He took his family with him up to uh, to worship. They're probably uh, uh, speaking of the the uh, the the festivals that they would go to, and and that he he takes his wives, his children. They all go up. It's a it's a family affair. To worship God faithfully. And he had been prosperous. We know that from everything that Scripture tells us about Elkanah, that he had means, that he had been successful, or at least been, you know, um, very, uh, been a good steward of that which God has given him. And he's got two wives. And, you know, really, I don't want to get into a big thing about polygamy, but I think that it's good to just address it when it's there. uh, That his Hannah. Very likely his first wife was unable to bear him a child. And so he, he married again, Penina. And he marries her uh, to have offspring, which was necessary in this culture. And uh, when you look at polygamy in the Old Testament, you find that it's always discouraged, but yet it's permitted. Almost every single instance of polygamy in the in the Scripture always is accompanied by some kind of fiasco, disaster. Uh, it's destructive and Uh, Nature, whether it be through uh, spiritually or whether it be through relationally. And so Scripture is very open and honest in the Old Testament. And we we see that uh, there's a picture of things that that men do that God uh, doesn't uh, encourage, but yet He permits. He permits. And so there's this woman, Hannah. The name Hannah means grace. And her husband loves her. She's loved by her husband. And we... But we see that really the circumstances that she's facing are out of her control. There's nothing she can do to change these things. She's she's basically a victim of, of being born at a very difficult time. Maybe you could say the wrong time. She's a victim of, of a husband who loves her, but yet who makes the decision that he has to marry again because he needs to have offspring. And she's a victim of her own body because she's barren. And, you know, we... It was just a few months ago that I I preached a sermon about infertility and the pain of of that, uh, just that one burden and how that affects us. And my desire for us as a family of faith to be very aware of those around us who struggle in that way as it's been so hard on my heart. It's one of the hardest uh, uh, things that I have to face is just continually praying for those who desire such a wonderful good blessing and yet are unable to have children. And it's just hard. It's just hard and if it's hard today which God knows it is it was just unbelievably more difficult in biblical times not only was there no technology no no way to to aid a woman who was barren as there are today there was there was also no options that a woman today may have options to try to uh, you know conceive children or adopt or whatever the case may be. But beyond that, you have to understand the scorn that was attached to a woman who was unable to, to bear children, that she her validation came from being able to bear children, that her value was wrapped up in her fertility. And so she was almost not even seen as a woman. It was really, really harsh and very, very hard. And of course, uh, in that time, it would have been even more true than it is now that so oftentimes in our culture, the woman who is unable to conceive will make the leap in her own mind that it's God's somehow judgment against her. Certainly, I would hope that people around her aren't making that leap. But in biblical times not only the woman, but everyone around her would make that assumption that God's judgment is upon you and therefore you are unable to have children for that was seen as the most important thing that she could do. And we can't confuse the sovereignty of God with the judgment of God. And that's the danger when you get in these situations where there's pain and there's suffering and there's struggle. And then in our heart we want to move into this place that says, well, God must be displeased with me. He must be angry with me. He must be... No, He's a sovereign God. He's a sovereign God. But you can't, you can't make sovereignty the judgment of God. It just simply it won't work. It's, it's not meant to be. Those two things are not uh, synonymous. Verse 5. Look at verse 5. But to Hannah... Elkanah, her husband, would give a double portion for he loved her. And although the Lord had closed her womb and her rival provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. Well, now you can see that where this is coming from, there's tension here between these two ladies. Um, First of all, it wasn't that Penina didn't, it was obvious to her that Elkanah loved Hannah. And so that was hurtful to Penina. So the way Penina would respond to Hannah was, well, I can have children and you can't have. Now, you know, you can let your imagination run where you were, where you may. But, you know, every man in here can imagine the catastrophe that Elkanah had rolling in this situation. I mean, there was never a peaceful moment, I am sure. And it was back and forth and back and forth. And Hannah who is really the focus of this story, finds herself in this predicament, this place where there's a dangerous cliff that we can so easily go off of. We begin to fixate on the source of our pain or our struggle or that which we desire and don't have. Whatever the problem is that we want God to fix, that we have so longed for Him to fix as it strings along and as God doesn't intervene and the problem doesn't go away and the thing isn't fixed, the danger is that we get fixated on this thing and we don't see anything else. And then everything in our life begins to revolve around this thing. And once the pain becomes preeminent, we've got a huge problem. We've allowed it to become an idol. Now here we see that Hannah is suffering and Hannah is struggling greatly and that this was going on for quite a long time. I don't know the degree to which uh, her focus had become singular as to needing to have children. you know, I'm not going to read between the lines. I just simply know that in our lives and in my experience... That's the great danger that that you first need to be warned of tonight in this text. That That's our great danger. That's my danger and your danger. Is that we want God to do something and God doesn't do it. And that something becomes preeminent in our lives over God. And when that happens, the rest of the story is not good. It's not good. And you need to caution your heart against that. And know that... Uh, nothing 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 goes before the lord that that good things are the easiest things to become idols when we don't get what we want we become perilously uh close to it just seems like we're we're walking I, i've been at places in my life where it felt like i was walking on this the ledge and i know the danger and i know the and i it's it's you, you have to consciously remind yourself to, to leave that thing alone and not focus on it and focus on the Lord and allow God to pour into our lives. And we see it, we see it in so many areas of our life. We, we see it with, with young people who want to be married. They, they just, they're obsessed with being married. They want to be married. And that's a good thing. But what so often happens? How does the story go? How many, how many young ladies and young men have we seen whose heart's desire was to be married? And it's a good desire and it's a noble desire. But they, they wait and they wait and they become impatient. They take matters into their own hands and they make a mistake. And they end up, in a, they end up married, but it's not the way they thought it was going to be. Or, you know, maybe, it's, maybe we, we just want to be healthy. And we don't, we, we think, well, why can't we be healthy? Why, why, I mean, why is, is that too much to ask? We just want health and health doesn't come. And then we begin, we, we become fixated on health and then everything that, that God speaks into our life comes through the lens of, of me being unhealthy and desiring to be healthy. Or I, or I just want to be happy. Or whatever the case may be. Whatever that thing is. If I just had this one thing, I would be fine. Whenever you get spiritually to a place where there's one thing, if you just had this one thing, if God would just do this one thing, it's time to drop that hot potato because it's, it's become way too prevalent in your life. So there's Hannah. She has to look every day at Penina who has Elkanah's children. But it's Hannah who has Elkanah's heart. It's Hannah whom he loves. And so there they go up to... I'm assuming the Feast of Tabernacles. It's not specific. And they go up to this time. And, you know, there's, meat is, an, is just a, a very special luxury. And so they're, they're, they sacrifice animals and they'll burn off the fat to the Lord as a sacrifice to the Lord. And then they'll be able to eat this meat. And so the fact that, you know, to us, you know, we don't think much of the fact that he gives a double portion to Hannah. But believe me, when he gives Hannah a double portion, it's like a dagger in the heart of Penina. It shows her such respect and such love. And and so the the other wife is just devastated by that. And so I'm sure that it would just ramp up the 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 contentiousness and the, and the, the, the struggle between them. And so it would come to a head and it would become this very trying time where Hannah would be reduced to tears and just refusing to eat. And so Elkanah, I mean, he's a, he's a man. He's well intentioned. He's trying to do the right thing. I mean, I read this over and over and I, and I, you know, I just kept trying to put myself in his shoes and, He's in a no-win situation. I mean, he's, he's trying to do right. He's trying to deal with this, this wife whom he loves. She's needy. She's brokenhearted. But he can't fix it. I mean, we know how this works out, right? Oh, what's he going to do? He's going to... Every year, he goes up to the Feast of Tabernacles. And don't you know on the way up there, he's thinking to himself, he's going in his mind over and over. He knows what's happened in the years past. So he knows the danger uh, of her being upset. So then he thinks, well, maybe this year I won't give her a double portion. Well, oh, that's going to go over well, right? Oh, so then she's going to be like, oh, so now you don't love me at at all. So now I'm just, so you've given up on me. So he can't do that. But he knows if he does give her a double portion, he's going to get, you know, she's going to break down and go cry. So what do you think, guys? There's just no win. I mean, he just simply can't win. So he's trying to do the right thing. He's trying to be an encouragement. But it just falls apart and she ends up weeping unconditionally. Verse 8. So Elkanah, her husband, he says to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart so grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? I mean, does he really want an answer to that? No, he doesn't. How many times have, have I asked the question of Lisa and then thought, please God, don't answer that? You know? Please God don't answer that honestly. You know, I mean, there he is. I feel I'm so comforted by there's Elkina, this good godly man trying to fix all the problems that are unfixable. You know, All she wants is a hug. Just hug her and listen to her weep. And, you know, and he's steadily barraging her with questions. You know, what's the problem? I mean, and don't you know they've been through this every single year? It's the same old broken record. And he's just trying to to fix it. You know, and when you're hurt, when you're really hurt, when you're deeply hurt, when you're hurt like Hannah's hurt, you just want to be alone. You, you don't want to talk to anybody about it. Do you know why? You know why Hannah doesn't want to talk to anybody about it? Because you know the feeling of being deeply hurt and knowing that no one around you really understands. You see, when you're kind of hurt, when you're kind of hurt, well then you 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 want other people to to know about it. When you're still trying to process how hurt you are, you want to talk to other people about the hurt, people that are close to you. You want them to just hear you out. You want them to listen. But there's a place in the scale of pain that gets so deep and so painful that you don't want to talk to anybody because no one understands. And you just begin to feel that it's just pointless. And so why? And so her pain is that is is at that place. She doesn't want to talk about it. She doesn't want to have a conversation about it. She doesn't want you to answer her questions about it. She just wants to be left alone. And so she would just get up and walk off and be left alone. So that's Hannah's pain. Let's look at Hannah's prayer. Her prayer, beginning in verse 9. Something happens between verse 8 and verse 9. And haven't we seen this in all these Hebrew narratives that there's a place where God's dealing with us and then there's a transition point in the text. And here it is between eight and nine. So verse nine says, Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking at Shiloh. And now Eli, the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. Now, this was different than what had happened before. In the past, she would just begin weeping uncontrollably. She would get up. She wouldn't eat. She would go off by herself. But now, something's changed. She's got, she gets up and instead of going into isolation, she goes into God's presence. She does something different than she's done before. It's not that she feels any different. It's not that her pain is any less than it was before. But she deals with the way she feels in a new way. She allows her pain to move her to God instead of isolating her from people. You see, and that's really the question that we have to ask ourselves in pain. Is is the pain that that we feel going to become a wedge that drives us away from God or is it going to drive us to God? Because I, I don't think that, that anyone walks with God. I don't think that anyone walks with God without a thorn in the flesh, without a, uh, an, an infertility uh, time in their life, without a, uh, some enduring struggle. I just don't think, I don't think they do. I don't know them and I'm certainly not them. And so what do we do when we hurt? What do we do when we hurt long term? If you're hurting tonight and you've been hurting for some time, what has that hurt done in your life? Has it driven you to God? Or has it become a wedge between you and God? And we see that this is a turning point for Hannah. She responds differently than she has in the past. And so she goes To the tabernacle where Eli is. Now you know what's interesting that's that's missing from this story? Maybe you've picked up on it, especially if you're here tonight and you your heart is broken with pain and you're struggling with pain, then you know that this is one of the first bridges that you crossed, but it's not in this story. And it's always one of the first bridges that we cross, but it's not here. Do you notice there's no discussion, no allusion to, there's no premise for fault in the story. Do you notice that? There's no fault. Yeah, there's no, there's no, there's not even a way that you can come around and, and stick it in on Hannah. There's no, there's no fault. It's not, there's not that it's, it's anybody's fault. You can't, it's not that she's looking around and she's thinking, you know, why have you done this to me or why is this or why? It's just simply, The way it is. There's no human reason for it. It just is. And so she turns and goes to the tabernacle. Look at verse 10. So she was in bitterness of soul and she prayed to the Lord and she wept in anguish. I mean, those are strong words. She was broken. And she makes this vow. And she says, O Lord of hosts, Yahweh, If you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall come upon his head. You know, I know for most of you, this is not a new narrative. This isn't a new passage. I mean, I've preached on this before but let it just impact you in a new and fresh way. What if she calls out to God? It's not that she's indicating that God could forget her, that He could miss the, the, the fact that she's struggling or that she is in need, but it's that she's asking God to turn His countenance, to, to look towards her, to turn to me, to see me in my need, God. And she must... She must have somehow sensed the danger that this pain either was becoming or had become an idol in her life because of what she says. I mean, if it it weren't for this, I still would have said what I said, but this just throws it right in our face. I mean, why does she say this? Because she realizes that this pain has become her God. It's become her idol. And so she's relinquishing that to God. She's saying, if you will remember me and turn to me, God, then, then I'll, I'll give him. I will give him all the days of his life for you and for your calling and purposes. And so she says, if I have a son, of course, he would be a Levite because his father's a Levite. But she goes further than that. She says, well, he would would take a Nazarite vow. He would take a, a, a vow that's voluntary, that he would refrain from all of these various activities and serve the Lord with all his days. I mean, just to be a Levite, you would be called to serve God. But that would really only be from about age 30 to about age 50. But no... To take this vow would be to say, No, I'm going to serve God in this way. I'm going to give of all of these things to always draw my attention back to what God has called me to do. It's as if Hannah is saying, I, I used to I used to glorify you, God, so that you would give me what I wanted. But now she's saying, if you, God will just give me what I want, I'm going to give it to glorify you. That something has changed. her her desires have shifted that the glory of God has has sat on the throne of her pain. And so in verse 12, as it happened, as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli washed her mouth and Hannah spoke. uh, Now Hannah spoke in her heart and only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. And so Eli thought she was drunk and Eli said to her, how long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered him and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant to be a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I have spoken until now. I mean, obviously, it would be utterly and completely inappropriate. It would be, it would be utterly uh, unthinkable to, to come into the tabernacle before the Lord drunk. But Eli, he's old, he's, he's, he's mostly blind, he's certainly uh, you know, lacking in many areas of his life based on the, the uh, behavior of his two sons and the position they're occupying. And so he, 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 she's so broken that he thinks she's drunk. And so Eli answers and said, Go in peace and the God of Israel may grant your petition which you have asked him. It's as if in this moment, as she's responding to him, God just gives him this prophetic word to say to her, Go in peace. God's going to grant that which you ask. It's almost like you can, you, you picture, when I read verse 17, I, I picture the, I, honestly, I, I know the feeling of something flying out of my mouth and then thinking, I really wish I wouldn't have just said that. But I know that it was the Lord, but it just scared me to death because of what it said. Because I I don't know that. But sometimes God just gives us a prophetic word to speak to somebody and we just speak something into their life. And I can remember we were having a, a service in here and I was up here preaching and And there was a a couple sitting down here in the front and who was in this exact situation. They'd been longing to have children and they'd been going through all these struggles and they'd had a miscarriage and they were, you know, going through all this fertility and all this stuff. And, you know, the last conversation I'd had with them is that they just gave up. They said, we just give up. We're not, we're done. We've spent all this money. We've exhausted all our resources. We've done everything we know to do. And... And I just remember thinking, you know, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm like Elkin. I want to fix it. I can't. I can't fix it. And uh, so, you know, a month, month and a half, two months later, I'm up here preaching. They're sitting right there. I'm going along about something. And suddenly I just blurt out that one day, They're going to be great parents. And I'm thinking, brilliant genius. Like, where, what are you doing? Who says that? I don't know that. It just flies out of my mouth. Was I happy when she got pregnant? Who was I happy? I was so happy. I knew it was from God, but it scared me half to death. And that's the sort of the situation that Eli's in. He just says, go in peace. But God's going to grant your permission, your uh, petition. And so she says to him, we'll let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and she ate and her face was no longer sad. Now, is she resting in the fact that all of her pain has been removed from her? No. Is she relieved because all of her problems are gone? No. But she's, she's finding comfort in the promise of God. That's the key is that the promise of God is, is now been, been placed upon her life. And so she's resting in the promise of God. It's, it's unfulfilled. It hasn't happened. She has no guarantee. She has no assurance, but she has the promise of God. And what do we, what do we do when, when we're talking to somebody who's in pain and we can't fix their pain and we can't resolve their issue and we're trying to, Help them. Where do we go? We go to the promise of God. And we just say over and over and over the promises of God. Because that's what we know to be true. That's what we can rest and stake our lives on. Everything else is just... It's just a a guess. It's just a, a whim. It's just a... Who knows? But isn't it true that There are things in our life tonight that we know are true, regardless of what comes. We know certain things are true. And those things are never gonna be untrue. You understand that? It's the only thing that will never, that can never move into the arena of it's no longer true. I mean, think about that for a second. We have the concrete, unchangeable, Absolute guaranteed promises of God. And our pain, in our circumstances, and and all our the human pressures around us and the, the the voice in our own head can lead us so astray that we'll become so consumed about something and so just just wrapped up in this thing and we will begin to bend all sorts of every sermon we hear every bible study we have we bend it around we try to condition it around that god would do what he should do or that he, and you're trying to validate your position against god with his own word I mean we do that and it is an absolute horrible devastating mistake because listen we don't know we don't know about our pain we don't we don't know about our circumstances what we know is the promise of God and so for Hannah this was the this was the promise of God I mean, when, when Eli says this to her, this is to her like Scripture saying this to you. She responds, God has said to me that this is going to be so. Now, it's not so, but He says it's going to be so. And so we, we see her, her pain and we see her prayer and now thirdly we'll see Hannah's purpose. And this is where really it just comes to bear in our lives practically. Verse 19. So they arose early in the morning and they worshiped before the Lord and returned and came to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked for him from the Lord. And so then she she becomes pregnant with a son. She names him Samuel, which technically it means his name is God. And so she, she... Names her son based on the fact that God has remembered her. Now she's pregnant. Now finally that what she has longed for for so long becomes true in her life. And what is she going to do? She's made a vow before God and it's a, it's not an easy vow. And don't think that the, the temptation wouldn't be there for any of us. To begin to think back now exactly, what did I exactly promise God? Is there a loophole in this anywhere? I mean, now I've longed to to have a child. I finally have a child and I've got to give him to the Lord. You know, you've got this Isaac moment. And so she's thinking, verse 21, Now the man Elkanah and all his house, he went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. So the Samuel's born. It's now time to go to Shiloh to worship God and to bring your sacrifices. But Hannah didn't go up for she said to her husband, Not until the child is weaned, then I will take him up, and that I may appear before the Lord and and that he may remain there forever. And so Elkanah, her husband, verse 23, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only let the Lord establish his word. Then the woman stayed and nursed her son until she had weaned him. And so he's young, I don't know, maybe three, maybe four. Elkanah is clearly, the reason why I point this out is that Elkanah is clearly on board with this vow. I mean, that, that was sort of in jeopardy in the beginning because she made this vow before God, but Elkanah wasn't involved in the vow. And so there could have been this controversy where she's finally born a son and then Elkanah could have rebelled against that, but he doesn't. He's, he's on board with her. Verse 24. So now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with three bulls and an ephah of flour and a skin of wine and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, and the child was young. I mean, to bring as a sacrifice three bulls is such an extraordinary payment. I mean, that is so expensive for this Levite and his family. It tells us a great deal about them and who they are. Verse 25, Then they slaughtered a bull and brought the child to Eli, and she said, Oh my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood by you here praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed and the Lord has granted me my petition which I asked of him. Therefore, I also have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So they worshiped the Lord there. Now, you, they're just... They're just words on a piece of paper. I mean, you just have to sort of build a fire and camp here for a second. You got to think about what this moment is in her life and what this, what this scenario feels like to be standing in the room and to, to see this take place. I mean, yeah, we dedicate our children to God. Please don't start driving them off at the church. <laughs> but we don't dedicate our children this way. She brings this son that she has so longed for to the Lord for his glory. Illustrating that the truth that we, we only want to know from a distance. The reality that so often in the believer's life, the place of pain becomes for us the place where we're most productive in the kingdom. The place where we have hurt the deepest and the longest becomes the place where we most glorify God in our lives. The place where we find our greatest calling and and highest usefulness and and greatest satisfaction in serving the Lord is the place where we hurt the, the greatest. So many of you in this room have lived this principle out that the the most broken place in your life, the most painful season that you 've ever endured, is the place that now on the backside of that pain, when you speak into other people 's lives as they are in similar situations you you sense almost that 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 God has just given you this ability to be able to reach down into their heart and to pour comfort and to con- con- confirm His word in their lives through this, this pain that you once felt. You see, it's, it's true for me, it's true for you, it's true for Hannah that God most glorifies Himself in her life through the most painful place she's ever been. And so what is this? Is this like a, a formula that we can just get what we want from God? Is this? Uh, do we walk away from this text and think, here's what we do. When I am hurting and I am suffering and I want God to do something, then I go to God and I make a bargain with God. And I say to God, God, if you will do this, then I will do this for you. But in reality, all we really want is what we really want. And it just doesn't work that way. That what you have to see is that the priority, the preeminent place in Hannah's heart was the glory of God. That you have to know and believe in your heart that whether she would have ever become pregnant or not, she left that moment in the tabernacle. She left that moment with Eli determined that God was the preeminent cause in her life, that he was the greatest value, that, that her highest calling was to glorify him. And God worked through that scenario. He worked through her pain. But it wasn't, it wasn't this, I'm gonna give you this and you're gonna give me that. It doesn't work that way. It never has and it never will. It's a picture where we can look into the life of a God follower and we can see in the picture Characteristics of the God that she follows. And we can learn from this picture. It shows us that when God's glory becomes our highest desire, it is a, it is a catastrophic shift in our perception of where we are, who we are, why we are, what we're about, what we're going through, that it, it changes everything. It makes reading the New Testament literally possible. How else are you going to read the New Testament? How else are you going to see Jesus for the joy set before Him endure the cross? How else are you going to see Paul singing in prison? How else are you going to see Men facing execution and glorifying God. Now you have two choices. Either you see this principle from 1 Samuel 1, or you simply have to say the people in Scripture are just different than we are, and we can never be like them, and we can never understand them. God just made them different. That's your only two options. That's your only two options. And if you choose option number two, my heart breaks for you. It breaks for you. That every morning when you wake up and you open God's Word, I hope you see yourself in the in the text. Did you see that this is the same God working in ordinary lives, just like mine and just like yours. And that He's still this God. And that you are still this ordinary. And that they're not some super special people. God goes out of His way. Think about it. He goes out of his way. He never ever passes an opportunity to choose the least likely person to do something. And why? Why does God choose a moon worshiper, some pagan nobody moon worshiper to be the father of his people? Because he knew that you would deny it if he didn't. He knew that you and me in our hearts would think, well, because Abraham was some special person. That's why. And then how come every one of his descendants is more dysfunctional than the one before? Because if it wouldn't have been that way, we would have get wrapped up in And we still get wrapped up in this, this legalistic earning our favor from God. And God continually works and blesses the lives of broken, rebellious idiots for our encouragement, for our edification. You and me are Hannah. We're Hannah. We're Abraham. We're, we're in the story of the redemption of humanity by this great and glorious God who doesn't care he's not a respecter of of what public opinion is about you he's not worried about what your occupation is or your social standing or what you have or how much education you possess or whatever the case may be he's not threatened by all the mistakes of your past he doesn't he's not he's not deterred by all of your failures and by how many ir- irresponsible decisions you made that doesn't bother god that's not this god This, God says, whoever you are, wherever you've been, whatever you've done, I long to glorify myself in you. I made you in my image. You can't go too far. You can't run away long enough. There's nothing you can do to thwart my desire to glorify myself in you. That ought to just make you want to shout. I mean, what would we do if it wasn't this way? I, for one, would never have a chance. Never. But God is so good. He, he says to Hannah, He says, Hannah, you're not validated by children. You're not you don't need a husband to validate you. You don't have to worry that every day of your life you're reminded by the the culture that you're born into. Of all of your flaws and deficiencies? You know what this text is screaming at us tonight? It's saying sometimes we need to be reminded of the simplest, most elementary things of God. Like the fact that God created you. Don't, I don't, I want you to push everything else out of your mind. God created you. You. Tonight. You. Who you are. Tonight. Right now. In this moment. He made you for the express purpose of bringing himself Glory. Now let me ask you a question. Is there ever a time, ever a place, ever a chance that He would slam the door shut for you to walk through into the opportunity for which He created you? Never. Never. He made you for His glory. And so if you are... Staring at the door, afraid to walk through. If you are doubtful as to whether or not God can do that, you are doubting the very initiative of God in creating us as His people. He made you in His image for His glory. He will not, He cannot, He never has and He never will take away that opportunity. Never, ever, ever. No matter how bad we hurt, no matter how deep our pain, he never will. So rise up, son and daughter. Rise up. Rise up in your pain. Rise up in your circumstances. Rise up in your deficiencies. Rise up in your your, your shaky past. Rise up in all of your secrets. Rise up in, in your closet full of skeletons. Rise up and say, wait, God made me. He made me in His image for His glory. I'm going to walk through that door. I say, God, you made me, you know everything about me. Here I am. Glorify yourself in me. And watch what happens. I mean, is this just a story about a lady who wanted to have a baby? Is that what this is? Or is this bigger than that? Because I... I don't want you to leave here tonight and think that this is just about you. It's just about you and God creating you for his glory and you're just going to go out here and it's just going to be your little your little party and your little tent about your little scenario and your little thing. Or is God bigger than that? Is God created you and called you for the express purpose of glorifying himself and he's got a plan and a purpose and what he's got in mind? And the, the you you've never Dreamt of. You've never imagined. You've never thought of. And then that doesn't mean. So put away all of your ideas of, of what it is and just say, Lord, could it be that my life, where I am right now, is not, is not an accident. It's not new news to you. You're not astonished by it. You're not, you're not, you're not threatened by it. You're not repulsed by it. I'm your son. I'm your daughter. I know why you've made me. But you are a God who's always committed to a bigger picture, a bigger plan. And somewhere in there is my role. Somewhere in there is my place. And I don't know where it is, but God, that's why I'm here. And so whatever it is, you're going to wake up tomorrow morning and have to do. No matter how mundane it is, stop and think for just one second. Has God taken away your opportunity to glorify Him, to be a part of the bigger picture? Has He done that? No. Can you become so so old and so tired that He won't use you? No. Can you be too young and too ignorant? No. It doesn't matter who you are. He's about something more in Hannah's life and in your life. Listen, Hannah prays this. Look at chapter 2. Just look at what happens. We don't have time, but just look at the first couple of verses. Hannah begins this song, this prayer. And she says, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. Nor is there any rock like our God. Now look at what she says in verse, look at the very end, the last part of verse 10. 1 Samuel 2.10. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Let me just ask you a very important question. What king? They don't have a king. There is no king. What is she saying? That makes no sense in 1100 B.C. It doesn't fit into any category. How could she say this? God has given her insight into something bigger. She doesn't know what this is. Well, She doesn't know that this little boy that she's just dropped off at the temple, she doesn't know that he's going to be the one that's going to come and anoint the little shepherd boy that's out in the field. She doesn't know that. When she says this, she thinks it's just about a mom who had a son who gave him to the Lord. And who sang a song and who praised God. But what she didn't know is that God was going to do something way bigger. That that little Samuel was going to anoint King David. That she could have, no one could have known. Go home tonight and read Luke chapter 1. Read the song, the Magnificat, of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Read it. And then go back and read 1 Samuel chapter 2. And you know what you'll find? You'll find that this little prayer of Hannah's, this psalm of Hannah's was burrowed into Mary's heart. That Mary clearly is utterly and completely familiar with everything Hannah said and had sang this a thousand times because she alludes to it over and over and over. Look down in in chapter 2 at verse 26 and then we're done. 1 Samuel 2.26 And the child Samuel grew in stature and in favor both with the Lord and men. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Does that sound like Luke chapter 2 verse 52? Is that not what the Bible says in Luke 2 about Jesus? That He grew in wisdom and stature and that He found favor. The same... Statement. Is that a coincidence? No. That's God reminding us in a thousand ways. He created you for His glory. He knows where you are tonight. He knows. He knows your pain. He knows your struggle. He knows your circumstance. But if you live your life for His glory, if you make His glory the greatest desire of your heart, if you carry that into whatever pain you're in, whatever whatever situation you're in, whatever is heading your way, like a freight train for tomorrow morning, whatever that is, you begin to see things differently. God never, ever takes away the opportunity for you and me to fulfill the very reason why we exist. We're not breathing his air tonight on accident. Contrary to the way Hannah felt in the beginning of this story and the way that some of you feel and have felt for a long time, you're not a stepchild in the kingdom of God. You haven't been passed over, you're not broken and unusable. You're his son and his daughter. And He loves you. And there's no limit upon His ability to do whatever it is that He desires to do. To bring Himself glory in your life. Let's stand and bow our heads.